This morning I'm starting a series and it's called, So You Want to Go Back. Um, I, like this, I like this slide because it's showing somebody at the bottom, bottom and you see, the, you see the, the, the track or the direction. So what, what direction are you going? And this morning I want to talk about, I want to talk about people that are walking away from the faith. You know, when I came to Christ um, and I was in high school and as I was growing in Jesus and and all, there was a guy that I used to love to listen to. His name was Steve Green, and he wrote a song called So You Want to Go Back to Egypt. It was kind of a funny song, but I remember hearing, hearing him uh, play that song once and talking about it. And he was talking about our condition today as a church. Now, this was back many years ago before he passed away. But I remember him talking about can this happen where God's people would become dissatisfied with God in such a way that they would start going back. And I left it blank because that back can mean anything. Go back to the old way of life, to go back to another belief system, to go back to another way of thinking. As I thought about this series that we're about to embark on over the next four or five weeks, it'll be mostly out of the book of Hebrews. If you want to take your Bibles, turn to Hebrews 8.1. I'm not going to get there for a while. A lot of this is going to be kind of introductory into this series. But one of the things I remember Keith Green as he shared about that, he talked about Israel going back. And I don't know if you remember the situation of Israel where they were in bondage in Egypt. And God brought 10 plagues. Most of us have heard that, probably saw the movie uh, along the way. And God delivered his people and they got to take the, the... the best of refuge of, of goods as they carried out, as much as they could carry. And, and they're going out there, they come across to the Red Sea. Do you remember? And Egypt, the Pharaoh had a change of heart and Egypt's coming down on them. And God, by his grace, opens up the, the sea and they cross over on the dry land. And they're going over into the wilderness and the water crushed the Egyptian army. And, and they find themselves out there in the wilderness. Now, I don't know if you've ever been out in a dry land. I know a couple of summers ago when I was in Tanzania, we were in a very dry part and there just was no water anywhere. I was really amazed at how they got their water. But there was just wasn't any water. And you can imagine this large group of people traveling in the wilderness. And so they start grumbling and they're grumbling to Moses and Aaron. But in reality, they're grumbling against God. Don't forget, God brought them out here. God took them out of bondage. God was taking them to a promised land and they were in a transition. And so they start grumbling and there's this water here and the water's bitter and God opens the eyes of Moses and he sees this log and he tells him to throw the log and the log throws the log in the water and the water becomes sweet. So it's not like these people hadn't seen God answer before. And seeing God deliver and bring them along. But it wasn't that much long, longer before they began to grumble again against Moses and Aaron. And really they were mo- grumbling against God, the text tells us. This time they were hungry. That God had brought them out here in the wilderness and they, and they hungered. In fact, if you, we were to look in Exodus chapter 16 and verse 3. Put that up for me. Exodus chapter 16 and verse 3. It said, would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full. For you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. And I'll leave that up there for a minute. Always, always cracked me up when I read this. It's kind of like really the ultimate criticism of God, isn't it? It's the ultimate criticism. 
What are they saying? Oh, that God, oh, that we had died by the hand of the Lord. If God would have just taken us while we were in Egypt. Why Egypt? Because we were sitting. It doesn't say there was food. It just says we sat. I see this picture of them sitting there next to their meat pots, you know, where they can just reach in. And it was easy to grab their food and eat. And they, and there was, they ate bread till they were full. But God has brought them out into this wilderness to kill the whole assembly in the wilderness. Isn't it funny that you find here that their, their expectation, their understanding of the circumstance is that God brought them out there to die. Why didn't he just kill them while they were in Egypt? Now let me ask you a question. When I looked at this and thought about it, I came up with a question. I was, the question I had is, are they out of God's will? Are they out of God's purpose? I mean, isn't God leading them somewhere? Didn't God do the miraculous when he delivered them out of the hands of Pharaoh, the most powerful country at the time? When the army of Egypt was bearing down on them, he delivered them, he brought them into this wilderness, and now they're hungry. And in their mind, the only intent God had for them was to die. I found that very interesting. As I began to think through that, one of the things I came to realize is that my circumstances are a poor indicator of God's plans and purposes. Think about that. That God's plan and purposes for me aren't always determined by my circumstances. There have been many times in my life when my circumstances haven't been in such a way that I've been very happy with. And if I talked to most of you, you would agree. But does that mean that God's hand isn't on me? Does that mean God doesn't have a plan and a purpose and a direction for my life? Absolutely not. It really becomes about my focus. And to them in Egypt, there was plenty of food. But here following God, it led to hunger. It wasn't about the promised land that that God had promised. It was about where I was full. If I was sitting in Egypt, I would be full. I would be comfortable. So our our, our circumstances are poor indicators of God's plans and purposes. When we focus on our self-expectations, we find ourselves deceived by different voices. When self-expectations about our circumstances become the governing factor, it distorts our understanding of what God is planning and doing in our lives. Think about that. We live in a day where it is about us. It's about me. It's about what I think. It's about what's best for me. We live in a day where we're taught that, but we are the people of God. We are the people of God. We are the people of God. I'll keep saying it until someone says amen. amen. We are the people of God. Amen. Are we not? So if God is, God, if I'm his people, does he not become my focus? You see what's interesting is right after this, if you go from Exodus chapter 16 and you begin to read and write in the next few verses, you know what it says? It says God rained bread down on them. God says, I'm about to rain 
bread on them. In fact, in such a way that when they woke up in the morning, by the dew of the morning, it's, it's okay. God speaks through the children, does he not? I love our children. So don't worry about it. I love you guys. I love the Thule's. I love you guys. <laughs> um, in the mornings when the dew came and the dew dissipated, you know what was on the ground? Manna. It was bread. You know what came in the evenings? Quail. Have you ever had quail? I love quail. I mean, God fed them well. And the idea was what they were supposed to do is on a daily basis, what they were supposed to do is take enough for that day. Not for two days, not for three days, but just for that day. And then the day before the Sabbath, they would take enough for this, that day and the Sabbath as well. Why? Because they were to trust God to provide. And you know what? The disobedient people of God, you know what they did? They tried to take enough for two days. And so the, day, the next morning when they got up and they went to their bread, do you know what they found? Worms. And it stank. Because they were to trust God to provide each day, just as God had taken them from bondage and led them out in the wilderness, and they were to trust God to lead them into the promised land. Now they must trust him on a daily basis to provide. God was teaching them how to trust them. You know, the book of Hebrews and where we're going to spend our time is a book uh, that speaks about people who move back, who walk away from Jesus. It, he speaks to a people who began to doubt their faith, who began to, to walk away from their, from, their, from their faith and walking after their own expectations. Life had gotten hard for many of them, and persecutions and the rejections from family and friends, and, and things had gotten tough, and their expectations about what life should be all about became such a priority that, that they began to walk away, and, and Jesus just became an image and a mirror as they moved away. And it's just as true. I think this is a message for today. The circumstances would be different, but I think it's just as much of a message for today. Earlier this year, George Barna did research. In the Barna research, he, he did a survey of evangelical Christians. Please let me make sure you understand this. He did a survey of evangelical Christians, not of Americans, not national, just within the evangelical church. And this is some of his research as a result. He said 52% of evangelicals now say they do not believe in objective moral truth or that the Bible is inerrant, trustworthy in all its content. I would mourn to think about what that means. That means what they're saying is that they don't believe that this in its context is enough to lead us to truth. That this doesn't guide us into truth. So where does truth begin? It begins to begin in what we think, doesn't it? We put the emphasis on our, on our deductions, on our scholarship, on our own abilities to come to devices or conclusions. But the reality is, my whole life, this book has been truth. The next one disturbed me even more in the next research he came up with. He said 75%, now listen to this, 75% of evangelical Christians believe that people are basically good instead of basically sinful. Even though God's word says all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. So when you begin to change and say that there's error 
or that the content has faults, or there's differences here. Now you come to a passage like all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, and now you have to make adjustments. If we're basically good, and the idea behind that is that we could find God. That somehow we are able to approach. The next one even drove me more insane. 43% of evangelical Christians believe that Jesus sinned during his time on earth. 43% believe that Jesus sinned. If Jesus sinned, where's our hope? If Jesus sins, there hasn't been a sacrifice that is worthy yet. If Jesus sins, he is not the minister of the new covenant that we have in Christ Jesus. If Jesus sinned, we do not have a mediator between God and man, Jesus Christ. 43%. 58% believe that the Holy Spirit is merely a symbol rather than a person. In other words, he's not part of the Godhead. And a majority of the respondents did not believe in the inclusivity of the Christian faith. In other words, that the Christian faith is the only way, by the name of Jesus, the only way to be saved. I I I was dumbfounded. And yet I believe that Hebrews, this book, speaks to believers about remaining true to faith and remember who Jesus is. You see, in the middle of all of these things, when we talk about our world, we're moving in a direction as a church where we're walking away. And, a, and the problem is, is that it became, becomes a part in the way that we look at our own self-expectations. No different than Israel. I would rather be in Egypt sitting by my meat pot than out here in the wilderness being led by God. And some of you are going through some difficult times and some of you are going through some difficult situations and you're like, I just want it to go away. And if that means moving away from God, I think I'll do that just to make it go away. And people are walking away from the faith. And yet the author of Hebrews writes to these believers about remaining true about who Jesus is. And he encourages us in patience and he encourages a consistent walk. He encourages them to remain steady in the faith, not to move back, not to, not to move away, but to remain true. The book of Hebrews is an interesting book within the New Testament. It was written around 67, 69 A.D., uh, the author, we have no idea who the author is. In fact, Origen, one of our early church fathers, about 100 years after Hebrews was written, I believe, he wrote, only God knows the truth. <laughs> There's a lot of different traditions and so forth. I know traditionally some say Paul, and some of the newer has been Apollos, and there's all in between. But regardless, the Christian church has rightly regarded this book throughout the ages as being truth from God's that the testimony and the message from God here is definitely spoken to the church. The occasion for which he wrote is that tensions have begun to rise between Jews and Gentiles. You see, more and more Gentiles were coming to Christ and they were entering into the church. And there was Hebrew loyalty and some of them did not want to leave and go into the church because they feel like they were rejecting Judaism or rejecting the Hebrew faith. And some of those that already came into the church were now starting to go back because of their own loyalty. There was also 
Jews who had believed and broke were now being persecuted socially. They were considered dead. I remember many years ago, I was working in the gas station just in high school, and we had this guy that was a Muslim that was working there, and he was very devout. And he had a nephew that was working there as well, and his nephew got Americanized, according to his uncle there. And I can remember, because he was Americanized, he considered him dead. And there was one day where I was standing there and the nephew walked in because this was back in the day. I know some of you young folks never heard this term, full service gas station where we went out and we checked and he did the tires. And he had collected money and was coming back in and he puts it down and he tells uh, his uncle was working the cash register and tells him and the uncle acts like he doesn't even hear him. And he, and he, and he looks at me and he says, is there somebody speaking to me? And I was like, uh, yeah, your nephew. And then the nephew told me, he said, he considers me dead because I've moved away from the faith. Well, it's the same picture at this time. Leaving Judaism, many of the family and the friends that they had was considering them dead. They were rejecting them socially. Some of them were being persecuted and their things being taken, their homes being taken. You saw Paul doing some of that before he came to Christ. The opposition of Rome was growing as well. Rome accepted Judaism, but it did not accept the Christian faith. And so now as more and more we're getting into the church, the persecution was rising, and these were the respondents and recipients of this, of this book. I believe the majority of them were the primary group was Hebrew Christians who were suffering rejection, and this persecution was leaving Christianity to go back to Judaism. Now, I don't think there's anybody in here that's grew up in Judaism came to the church and is going back to Judaism, right? I don't think that any of that's going on. But I think that the implications are still true. The principles and some of the things that we see here are true. I'm seeing more and more where there's become more and more of a focus of ourselves and what we want to accomplish. You know, we begin to pray. You know, we pray for God to heal somebody or we pray for a sickness we might have a family member or a friend, and we, and we pray, and we pray with all of our hearts, believing and hoping, and then God doesn't seem to answer that prayer. We become disillusioned with God. We begin to find ourselves doubting about God's goodness towards us. That's what Israel was doing. God didn't mean us good. He brought us out in this wilderness to die. God did not mean good, and we start thinking the same thing. Why doesn't he take these things away? Might be praying for a job opportunity or a job situation and, and you pray and you believe with all of your heart and yet God doesn't answer it the way that you thought. And again, another little chip, another doubt, another disillusionment about who God is. I've, I've seen it with students. You know, they pray about their test. They pray about something they're, they're working on in school and then God doesn't answer and they're like, God isn't there. And they move away. He only becomes kind of a dim glimpse in the mirror behind them of what they used to believe, what they used to think. Maybe you, even here this morning, you faithfully pray, you read your Bible, you're involved in the church, you're actively involved in the body of Christ but it just seems like things just keep going the wrong direction. Things just keep happening and it just doesn't seem to get better, it just seems to get worse. You get frustrated with the day. I have one of those 
days on Friday. It just didn't matter what I did. I finally was just like, I just need to go to bed and wait for tomorrow because this day is not going to get any better. But then we go through periods in our life, right, where, where it just seems like this year doesn't ever get better. We're in one of those years as, an, as a people, aren't we? It doesn't seem like it gets any better. It doesn't seem like things change. Where is God and where is God when we, when we expect these things for him to address? And then you begin to expect God to meet your definitions. That's usually what's next. You know, what I understand, what love looks like, God better fit. And if I read this and what I understand love to look like doesn't meet what this says, then obviously God's wrong, right? And we begin to redefine truths that God has given us. We do that in the way that judgment is carried out. Maybe we don't like the way God judged or the way God lets something it seems like go on and, and we become disillusioned with him and we become distorted with him and we begin to wonder what he's, what he's doing and we can add that to anything whether it's a social issue or the definition of what the family looks like or, or anything and we begin to redefine because now what's happened is we become the primary dictator of what truth is for you don't miss that little phrase for you I mean, I've heard it so much in this day and age, like to do what's best for you, to decide what's for you. I don't care what's truth or not truth. This is what is truth for me. And God gets pushed to the side, not just second or third or fourth. He oftentimes is thrown off the list. And now it becomes me and all of my intellect, right? And all of the divine that dwells within me. And I know truth and I determine truth. And all of a sudden, our circumstances and our way of life really distorts God's purposes and plans for us. You see, I think you begin to drift. You begin to drift away from Christ in those times. And if you continue, you begin to move away in such a way that you never come back. That's why I titled this, So You Want to Go Back. Go back to what? You see, the author of Hebrews, he writes to a people like this. He writes and he exalts Jesus and he, and he shows how Jesus is the fulfillment of what God intended. That he's superior and he is exactly the one who is able to minister this covenant that God has made with his people. If you look at the book of Hebrews 29 times, it quotes the Old Testament. 23 of those is out of the book of, out of the Pentateuch, this is the first five books of the Old Testament, and Psalms, which is kind of interesting because what the author does is he kind of neglects to name the author, the human author. Like a lot of the other New Testament writers, they'll say, well, the prophet Jeremiah, where Moses said this. Well, the, the author of Hebrews, he doesn't do that. In fact, what he does is he kind of leaves that off and he, the way that he does that, the emphasis becomes he sees it as God saying. So when he's quoting the Old Testament, he sees that as very much just like God saying this is truth. And so as he walks through here, you don't see that in any of the other New Testament books. And the Hebrew author, he sees that all of the Old Testament is simply the scripture is simply just God speaking. And you'll see it in a minute when we quote some of these verses. 
He sees all of the Old Testament scriptures and the scriptures pointing to Jesus and that they're fulfilled in who Jesus is. It's not about a specific prophecy. It's not about Jesus fulfilling a set of prophecies. It's about the whole of the Old Testament and the whole of that picture pointing to the person of Jesus Christ and the work of Jesus Christ. It's very interesting the way this author works through this book as he communicates who Jesus is. You see, I think really, dear people of God, one of the reasons why so many are walking away is because they lost sight about who Jesus is. The author of Hebrews draws that up, a picture for us about who Jesus is. If you will, Hebrews chapter one, verses one through three, if you'll put that up for me, thank you. It says, long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. I wanna stop there for a second. In the Old Testament, when the people wanted to, were, here's God and here's the people, when God spoke, he spoke through his prophets, where he spoke through angels. He spoke through Moses. Moses is the one that brought the Ten Commandments. He, he spoke to his people. And the way the people responded to God was through the priests, through the sacrificial system, through, through the gifts and so forth. So the author of Hebrews begins this and he says, hey, long ago, many times in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. Right here, the author of Hebrews says, God has set up who he has communicated through, and it's through his son. So think about this for a moment, dear people of God. If you walk away from Jesus, how are you gonna hear from God? Because God has said he's speaking through his son, Jesus Christ. And he goes on and he says, he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. Think about that. The exact imprint of his nature. What was it, 43% of the evangelicals believe that Jesus sinned in his lifetime? And if Jesus is the exact imprint of, the, of God's nature, what does that say about God? And if that's true, you know what? We close our doors and we're hopeless. Because there is no hope because I don't think I can save myself. And I don't know that anybody else in here can do that. I don't think I, in my own way, can find, find truth. He's the exact imprints of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. We saw that in Colossians. If you went to Colossians, he talks about him holding all things together. Now look at this. After making purification for sins, he made purification of sins. Wait, that's not necessary if 75% of the people are basically good, right? Why would Jesus need to purify people? Why would he need to make a purification for sins if people are basically good? But after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. This is an amazing statement. I underlined it because in a minute we're gonna see it repeated again when the author of Hebrews makes his point. But he sat down at the right hand. Sitting down at the right hand means the work is done. This is why I say once and for all, right? Jesus is sufficient once and for all because if he, hadn't, if, he, if he hadn't sat down, if he's still standing, if he's still ministering and carrying out those covenants, then, then it wouldn't be finished. But it's finished because after he's done it, after he's purified sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. So Jesus is superior to the prophets. The author of Hebrews goes on and he says in the same Verses following, he says, having become much superior to the angels as the, as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. 
Now I want to stop there for a second. Remember the angels? Who was it that came to Mary to tell her about, about the virgin birth, right? It was Gabriel. It was an angel. What about Daniel? When he had been praying and he'd been praying and God sent Michael to him. We see throughout the Old Testament over and over again where God used angels to communicate. And so he's saying here when he says he's superior to the angels because he has inherited a more excellent name than theirs. For which of the angels did God say, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Notice he doesn't quote necessarily where the reference is from because to the, old, to the Hebrew author, he sees scripture as God says. Or again, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. You see, Jesus is superior. And what the author of Hebrews is reminding these Hebrew Christians is he's reminding them that God has now spoken his son and God has said his son is greater than the angels because they worship him. Jesus is superior to Moses. Moses was important when Moses was the one that went up on the mountain, remember? He's the one that when he came down off the mountain, he was reflecting the glory of God. And yet Jesus is the glory of God's radiance. And Moses came down with the Ten Commandments. How important is he? And yet he says here in chapter three, for Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses. So in their minds, they see the glory of Moses coming off the mountain. Well, God's saying Jesus is worthy of more glory, as much more glory as the builder of the house has more honor than the house itself. For, everyone, for every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. God builds the house. He establishes the house. Now, Moses was faithful in, in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. Moses was a faithful servant in the house, but Christ is faithful over the house of God as a son. You see, Jesus wasn't a servant in the house of God. Jesus is over the house of God because he's the son of God. That elevates Jesus to a place that is not met by anyone else. When there be before that God has spoken through, through prophets and he's spoken through angels, he's spoken through Moses, and now he's speaking through his son. And dear people of God, it starts with Jesus. Jesus is the way. You wanna go back? Jesus is the way. When you go back, there's no more sacrifice. There is no other way in which men can be saved by the hand of God, other than the name of Jesus. Jesus is the way. And not only that, he's superior in regards to the priesthood. As he continues on in Hebrews chapter five, he says, for every priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God to offer gifts and sacrifices for sin. In other words, the priest who would represent the people of God, they would bring about offerings and sacrifices. Okay, as they did that, they were appointed. They were part of the tribe of Levi. They were the priest. And so they would, they would bring sacrifices. It says, he, talking about these priests, can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward since he himself is beset with weakness. Because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins, just as he does for those of the, of the people. And no one takes this honor for himself, but only when God 
when called by God, just as Aaron. So he draws out a picture here. He says, hey, look, these priests that you're bringing your gifts and your sacrifices to, and they go in and they bring the sacrifices and they represent you, well, you know what? They're just like you. They're sinful men. How many times I've said, man, I put on my pants the same way you do. I preach or I teach because I feel that's what God's led me to do. But I struggle in my walk with God just like you do. I deal with sin every day just like you do. And this is no true different for these priests. They struggled the same way. They had to bring offerings as well for their own selves. They can understand the shortcomings. I can understand your struggles with sin. Why? Because I, I, I do that as well. And so he goes on, he says, just as Aaron, then he says, so also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by God who said to him, you are my son, today I've begotten you. As he says also in another place, you are a priest forever. We're gonna see this next week. The priests that were coming daily with the sacrifices, they died. There, there had to be another priest. There had to be another. But Jesus is your, you're a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Melchizedek's kind of an interesting fellow. It's only mentioned a couple of times in scriptures. What's so interesting is as Abraham was coming back from, from a battle, from victory, he meets Melchizedek, and we know he's a king. And one of the things that, that Abraham does is he gives him gifts and offerings. And Melchizedek blesses Abraham. And so he's an order of, the, of a king priest, well, none of the other priests are in this order. None of the other priests were like this, but Jesus is. So when we're talking about the, the ability of people talking to God, Jesus represents us better. Why? Because he is a king priest. He is a, he is a son over the household of God. He is the one who ministers in the holy places of God. He's the one who represents us and he's able and he's adequate He's superior to, to what the prophets were. He's superior to, to the angels who came and proclaimed. He's superior to Moses who received the commandments. And he's a worthy priest on our behalf. The author of Hebrews is reminding them who were going back to another way in later, in later chapters and we'll be looking at him. He tells them, there is now no more sacrifice. You go back to that way. There's no sacrifice for sins. There's no, there's no other path. Remain steadfast. Hold fast your confession of hope. Hold fast to your faith. Do not go back. I told you in the beginning there, Hebrews chapter eight, that's where I'm gonna close at. Hebrews chapter eight, verse one, it says, and I love, I love when the scriptures are so clear. Now the point in what we are saying is this. Stop right there. Every, all these verses I've shown you, these are all part of that argumentation and now he's saying, this is the point. This is the point that I want to make. And notice what he says. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the at that right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. We read that back in verse three of chapter one. As the author of Hebrews began to build his argument and he comes to a place that Jesus is sufficient as our high priest, he's sufficient as the one who represents us. In fact, he goes on and he says, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. In other words, when I look in here, 
Men built this, this building. Men put this service together. A man is speaking. But unless God, by his spirit, moves in your life, what difference does it make? And unless Christ represents you as the minister of the new covenant, as a minister of the covenant of God in the holy places, what hope is there? Why would you go back? Why would you go back? Is there, is there another minister of God who can minister the promises of God? Like Christ? Like Jesus? Is there anyone else able to represent? And all of our scholarship and all of our, our abilities to think and, and come to conclusions, is that sufficient? Is there within us this, this divine that somehow helps us to, to attain? I would say not. I would say there's only one. And that Jesus is the way. He was the one who conquered death and brought life. He's the one who is righteously at the right hand of the throne of God and he sits there and accomplishing the work. He's the one who ministers the new covenant, the promises of God to those who would believe. Dear people of God, I'm, over the next couple of weeks when we're looking at Hebrews, we're gonna see this author draw out a picture that it could not possibly be anyone else but Jesus. He's the only one that can minister into the things of God. He's the only one that can bring life. He's the only one because you know why? Because Jesus is the way. Jesus is the way. Why would you go back? Why would you go back? Jesus is the way. He's the way. Let's pray. Father God, I just pray this morning that your spirit would just move among us. Father, I know that sometimes in the middle of, of life, we grow a little distorted about the things that are going on around us. And Father, we can grow discouraged. We can grow, Father, distracted. We can lose sight of your truth. And God, I pray that this morning that you would strengthen your people. I pray, Father, that if there's some here this morning who have been growing weak and have been heading in a different direction, that, Father, your spirit would move in their hearts and their minds, and, Father, just to remind them that Jesus is enough, that Jesus is the way. Father, if we walk away from Jesus, what else is there? Yes, Father, we can live for ourselves. We can, we can pursue good times, and we can pursue, Father, all the things that seem to matter, and yet when the last breath is breathed and the, and the, and the dust is being thrown on the on the grave, Father, what remains? What remains? Father, may your spirit move and encourage, strengthen. I pray, God, that your spirit would in such a way enlighten to you be the glory. In Jesus' name, amen.